Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the host of a critically acclaimed podcast exploring the paranormal describes his encounters with the unexplained and one rather unnerving dinner with a vampire from New Orleans. So the first thing I did when I went to New Orleans to interview this vampire was I actually picked up some protective items from a witchcraft shop. At that time, I was tired, I was puzzled, I was weak from three and a half weeks of travel at that point, all in one shot. And in other words, I was left wide open when dealing with energies, if that's a thing. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. Call them at 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and 
the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome to a wet and rainy Wednesday, at least up here in southwestern Ontario, just north of Toronto. We are in the midst of putting up a shed in the backyard, a bit of a wee barn raising, if you will. Anyway, we got the floor and the walls put up yesterday, but we had to suspend operations today until the rain clears. So there are four walls, but no roof. And so to protect the floor from getting too wet, we put down several tarps and rolls of plastic. And now the water is pooling there. And earlier today, we actually had a duck floating around inside the shed. Now he'll go and tell his friends and pretty soon we'll have a shed full of ducks. How wonderful. You know what else is wonderful? This terrific podcast I recently learned about. It's called Euphomet. Now imagine what it would sound like if NPR... National Public Radio decided to tackle the paranormal in a podcast. Jim Perry is the host of Euphemet. He's standing by in Las Vegas, and I'll get to him in just a moment. Just a reminder that I'll be hosting Coast to Coast AM this month, Friday, June the 14th. Friday, June 14th, I'll be sitting in for George Norrie. Then Saturday, June 15th, and again Friday, June the 28th, again sitting in for George. So go to coasttocoastam.com and find the affiliates page to find a radio station near you that carries Coast to Coast. And if you want to keep track of my appearances and events, you can also go to strangeplanet.ca. That's my website, strangeplanet.ca. Go to the events and appearances page. Euphemet with Jim Perry is a podcast about occulture the esoteric, and the enchanted, in search of the other side, the thing under your bed, that signal of unknown origin, and the true stories behind the strange phenomena that are outside the sphere of popular consciousness. Hey, sounds like my kind of podcast. Jim Perry is a podcast host, creative producer, and entrepreneur based in the Pacific Northwest. His fascination for the anomalous events that happen in people's lives inspired the creation of Euphemet, the critically acclaimed audio documentary podcast. Everyone has a weird story, and Jim is devoted to uncovering the intimate, human-centric version of these supernatural tales. How do unexplained phenomena such as UFO sightings and ghostly encounters affect us on a personal level? His interest in the esoteric and paranormal was first inspired by staticky AM radio broadcasts of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell and reruns of In Search Of, the investigative TV series. Jim's ideal style of presenting the paranormal in the raw for a contemporary audience and has been influenced by the tone and styles of arthouse science fiction films, street art, Swiss design, and guerrilla documentary projects. When he isn't embedded in the paranormal, Jim's running Defy Wrestling and creating content as an experienced creative director and filmmaker for clients such as Lexus, Stars, and FX Networks. Jim Perry, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Uh, so good. I'm in cool air conditioning catacombs of a Las Vegas casino right now. I feel like I'm a little bit 
bunker calling you from so it's it's only uh, heightening the atmosphere and uh yeah i'm a big fan of your work so i'm excited to talk to you today oh pleasure thank you uh first of all some definitions euphemet what is that is that a made-up word <laughs> it is 100 percent made up uh it's essentially a little bit of a play on words uh it's a branded ownable little term and it it, it it's sort of a euphemism for a euphemistic Baphomet or a playful devil, you know, uh -huh. expressing a little bit of maybe a duality or even a non-duality of uh, these paranormal experiences and, and how people relate to them. Well, you discuss the unexplained on your, your podcast. Some wonderful production values, I must say. It's done in kind of a documentary style. And one of the things that I, I like about what you do, you mentioned discussing the esoteric, but you talk about enchantment. And mm. to me, that is what is missing in, in radio today. I'm talking about mainstream media. It lives, it thrives in the podcast world. Uh, but uh, enchanting, uh, to enchant someone, uh, Lord knows we need that, I think, now more than ever. Mm. It's, it's Sadly, it's missing on the airwaves, but not so much on podcasts. So uh you're to be commended for that well thank you so much i mean i think it's a pivotal process of of connecting with the unexplained you know i think that it requires uh a connection or a uh, potentially at least the idea of intending to connect with the enchanted with the unknown with the unexplainable you have to have a portion of yourself ready to accept that a little bit and 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 honestly, because of the trickster nature of all of this anyway, right, you have to allow yourself and prepared to be a chanted, essentially. Yes, yes. And it's kind of a travelogue, isn't it? Because you you hit the road. You go to these places. I, I sit in my little studio beneath the stairs where I am right now, and I talk to people who go to these places and do these things and have dinner with vampires like yourself. I don't, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I, I guess I'm a broadcaster, but first and foremost, I, I don't, yeah. I'm not an expert in these areas, but you go and you do, your boots on the ground. Yeah, I, I mean, thank you. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm in no means an expert in terms of any of this phenomenon either. I'm, I'm sort of like a hitchhiker in some regards uh, going to town to town, phenomenon to a phenomenon, uh, really individual to individual that's experiencing this stuff. And re really, my journey began uh, as an aspiring broadcaster. You know, a lot of my roots uh, were, were sort of, um, it all started with the fundamentals of broadcasting and the fundamentals of content creation. And I did that for other people for a long time. And that was my main career. And then I just decided to do stuff on my own, you know. Um, that being said, I was I was inspired by guys like Art Bell. I was inspired by, uh, you know, guys like yourself under the stairs. You know, there's a romantic quality, and there's a more importantly a vibe that I think uh, I I try to hopefully capture, um, but just do it, you know, remotely um, and in the field and and sleeping sometimes on the couch of of a mysterious stranger that may have a little bit more uh, <laughs> going on than most, right? So, um, yeah, I have, I have a great deal of respect for broadcasters, and I, and I hope to be able to convey a little of that, that uh, mystery um, with the work I do on the road. 
Oh, and you do. And the, as I say, the production values uh, really are, well, enchanting. But why uh, why take the, this skill set that you have, and, uh, you know, producing and, and creative content and so forth, and apply it to the land of woo-woo uh, rather than, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, people that collect antique cars or, uh, <laughs> you know, arc, you know the, the, the world of design or architecture. I mean, there's all the different podcasts out there for anything and everything, but why the unexplained? Yeah, I guess you're right. I've never thought about it that way. I, I literally could have, in, in today's climate and with what's available, I literally could have produced a podcast about anything. And I have, <laughs> I mean, I have varied interests, right? Um, I run a pro wrestling promotion. I could have done one about that. Uh, I could have done one about comic books or film. Um, I think for me that I've had a very deep emotional connection to the paranormal. And when I think of broadcasting and when I think of creating audio, I first and foremost always think about the paranormal. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I had insomnia and I couldn't sleep at night. And uh, Art Bell was like, he was like my friend. You know, I would turn on the AM radio uh, starting in maybe 1993 or 94. I was a little kid and I went to sleep listening to his voice and listening to Bob Lazar explain about Area 51, etc. And so uh, that program, I think, uh, fundamentally shaped a lot of my perspective on what that content could do and what the paranormal is. Uh, as I got older and I found new ways to connect with the paranormal and the supernatural and the occult, whether it be reading guys like John Keel or, or, or studying different books or philosophies or, or getting deep into the mystical community even as a sort of a passerby, um, that's what opened my eyes to, hey, maybe you can do this as a podcast, but maybe you can do it like something else that you really like, which is, you know, this American life, you know? Why don't you take a public radio spin at this? And see what paranormal looks like in that format, and that's really how it—that's really how it beca uh, became a reality as a as a little bit of a creative challenge to myself. Uh, how can I take something that I love and am deeply connected with, and interpret in my own way? And in the meantime, you actually have had dinner with a real vampire. Tell me about that. <laughs> I have, I have indeed. Um, you know, my trip to New Orleans to interview Balthazar was. Uh, you know, you want to talk about enchanting, you know, it was sort of uh, the deepest, darkest, you, you know, kind of ominous version of that. Of um, You know, vampires, there is, of course, a cultural identifier with them and an archetype that really can't be removed from our first thought of what vampires are, I think. Um, and that's been that that's been placed into a embedded into us forever. Um so the first thing I did when I went to New Orleans to interview this vampire uh, was I actually picked up some protective items from a witchcraft shop. Um, at that time, I was tired. I was puzzled. I was weak from, you know, three and a half weeks of travel at that point, all in one shot. And in other words, I was left wide open when dealing with energies, if that's a thing. Um so I picked up some random items. I just didn't know what to prepare for. We're talking about voodoo energy. We're talking about um, satanic energy. In New Orleans, we're talking about vampiric energy. How am I supposed to deal with that when I'm in such weakened state? But Balthazar, he's, he's an individual who's a voodoo priest. He's an ordained minister. He's the elder of a house of vampires. 
and he's based in New Orleans. And of course, New Orleans is haunted. <laughs> it's it's history, it's politics, um, you know, the people, the weather, whatever. That 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 deep muddy place uh, holds so many stories of something else that um, can't be seen. And uh, everything about it, from the gas lamp flickering. Um, it all reveals like these sort of deeper shadows almost to use, you know, uh, sort of a metaphor there. Um, and once you go past like sort of the gaggles of tourists and once you start getting into those alleyways, um, you start feeling like you're in a different place in a different time very quickly. And so I was loaded up with all of that before I even met Balthazar. And so when I met Balthazar, what was interesting is he defied a lot of my expectations, but also confirmed a lot of my notions. One of those notions is this. The paranormal is innately humanistic. Now, the, like in my opinion, that may sound counterintuitive to a lot of folks, but if you look at the paradigm in which we view this thing, it is always through a human lens, right? And so if I've learned anything from mystics, especially maybe non-dual Kabbalists who believe in maybe the non-dual nature, is that the ego essentially a lot of times cannot be separated from what our perspective is. And I believe that's the case with the paranormal. We see it through and interpret it through uh, a, a human lens. And I think that we also assign identities and we assign belief systems that relate to, you know, perhaps our relationship to the paranormal or our relationship to ourselves in a very deep way. So Balthazar, he made a choice to be, become a vampire, to embody, this archetype, but he made that choice because he believes that there's a physiological reason that he needs human blood. And he's not alone. There are a community of vampires across the world that live right next door to you, essentially, in every city in the world uh, that are part of houses that consume human blood in one way or the other. And so I went to go, <laughs> I went to go have lunch with him. Um, I do have limits in terms of how deeply I'll probe and investigate. I didn't want to become a donor myself, right? I felt like maybe that would be a little too far. But I did want him to really explore with me how he came upon this discovery that physiologically he was perhaps having these responses and these urges that once he fed, once he developed a way and a community to be able to feed, made him intrinsically so much healthier. And so this is, this is one of the things they think about, Richard, is that they think that um, it almost, human blood almost gives them a life energy. And, you know, if it, one can only like look a little bit fur, further into conspiracies about life energy, about chi, about mana, about these things that inherently within a lot of these stories, right, um, is very important uh, part of a process or a ritual to have these things satiated. And a lot of folks will satiate with this sort of life energy. Again, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much of it like I, uh, like I ascribe to, but I, I do know that whatever reaction he's getting from consuming human blood is his truth and that he believes it and that in, in that way it is making a positive uh, a positive dent into his reality. Um, what I learned too was that 
for as many vampires there are, there are even more donors. And these donors are individuals that um, are drawn to donating blood, do, uh, donating blood for, for various reasons. Uh, you know, some of them, uh, there is maybe a sexual element to it. Uh, there, there's maybe uh, sort of just a fringe interest in terms of saying that you're a part of a community that, that, that donates blood to vampires, that you have a relationship with a vampire. Um, and others get something seemingly physiological themselves. And so what's interesting about Balthazar is that he signs contracts with his donors. And they're similar to in fringe communities, similar to, to what maybe a BDSM master or something will sign with, uh, will sign with their slaves, I think they call them. Um, they'll have a similar agreement as to where I'll be able to feed on you, right? A certain amount of times. Um, they'll do uh, health checks, both Balthazar and his donors, and make sure everyone is safe and healthy, and this is something they mutually agree to do. Right. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. How is the transaction carried out? I mean, do they, does he put on a porcelain fangs, or, uh, or do they just hand over a, a test tube full of blood? I mean, how does that happen? That, that's a great question, and Balthazar is direct mouth to skin. And so what he'll do is he'll have a sterilized blade that he'll make an incision, usually on the back, but but it can be other places. And he'll he'll literally suck the blood out of his donor and he'll suck up to 6 to 8 ounces of blood in one setting from his donors. Um, other other vampires do have different techniques, uh, phlebotomy, you know, uh, or they will, you know, sort of donate a test tube, that sort of thing. And, and, uh, although Balthazar doesn't have any, uh, you know, long appendages and any feigns or anything like that, uh, there is a community of vampires that are very much into, um, embracing the archetype image, right? So they'll have fangs essentially applied to their dental work and, uh, they will as well, use those fangs to, to puncture a donor's skin um, and, and drink that way. Um, one of the things, 
so yeah, so they're sucking blood. Like how, just how, how far do they carry that? Let's say Balthazar, for example. I mean, the other trappings of vampirism, uh, an aversion to lights, you know, sleeping uh, in, a, in a coffin. Um, all, you know, just I'm going to parade all the cliches here. Yeah, how far yeah. do they? How far do they take this? Right, um, collecting, collecting, uh, you know, antiques and <laughs> right, right, old paintings and yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think uh, some of that for sure. The the the, the parts of that, that dichotomy that is sort of accomplishable, like within our three D reality. I think it's it can be all there now. Balthazar was wearing Avengers T-shirt and was just, you know, oh, he had long hair. <laughs> yeah, he's just a normal guy. You know, I rode, he came up to my hotel room actually to do this sit-down interview part. So I was inviting a, a, a vampire in, all right? Ah, so one thing, your you're, first you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, we, uh, you know, I had ate some garlic before and nothing, nothing happened there. And he had a reflection in the elevator mirror. So he was already defying a lot of... <laughs> a lot of those stereotypes but but listen that being said you know he did stress that you know like the community of vampires that are about embracing the archetype and you know modifying their features to accompany that you know i think there's just as many houses out there that listen they're still in the shadows and they're in the shadows not just because ooh, what we're doing might be taboo they're in the shadows because maybe what they're doing is not exactly on the up and up right and could be divergent more into the territory of what we may think of as a as a as a, a you know more malevolent uh, sort of energy or entity so right. i th- what are I we think, talking about here human sacrifice Satanism? you know I, man richard i don't know but you, you know uh, enough conspiracies are out there right in terms of these groups that have a vampiric energy these sort of, uh, you know, uh, whether that be like the the mysterious Illuminati type groups or that invisible left hand, right? I think that um, vam- vampirism it perhaps plays a part in that. I think what Balthasar was alluding to is that although his house is completely out in the open and do community events and are involved in nonprofit and charity, uh, that is not the case. That is absolutely the exception for rest of the community and that's why we don't hear about it and that's why it's not a known thing that vampires are real and they live right next door to you (laughs) (laughs) well on that comforting note (laughs) uh, well from vampires to uh something a little a little less uh uh sinister perhaps uh you communicated with a sasquatch via a secret code now, I yeah. would expect as much from someone from the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> right. I think we grow up just with this ability. But, um, no, I, I, found this, I found this community online, and it's a community that believes that they communicate with Sasquatch families. Uh, they refer to them as Sasquatch people. Uh, they communicate with them through a series of uh, natural symbols, uh, sigils, uh, glyphs yes. that uh, you you know a normal passerby would maybe walk past on a you know a mountain trail. So they take um, little sticks and and form uh, well glyphs or symbols and leave those for someone to discover. Correct. And this individual I talked to, his name was Brian Bland. He had this calling one day. Walk- 
walking his dog in the foothills of these, you know, huge mountain range and, uh, you know, stunning British Columbia, he had this call from the wild. Hey, you need to come out here. Hey, we, we need to talk to you. And so uh, he did one day and he started walking these trails and he started to discover these symbols, these sigils, these glyphs all over the place. And as he continued looking, he started to attribute different meanings and, and, and ideas and notions. And when he brought this, when he brought this concept to some of his First Nations people, some of these indigenous folks, they said, absolutely, that's a thing. That, that's a thing that, that we hold within our culture. You're communicating with Sasquatch people. And so since then, Brian has, has really like sort of led the charge with this online community, you know, the, the, the Facebook groups of the world of, of these folks from all over the globe experiencing similar things and seemingly having this deep connection uh, to these symbols that are left for them and these symbols that they leave for Sasquatch. Um, now, I, I know at first glance that seems like it could be a very terrestrial issue, Right. Um, and in fact, when I was out there in the woods with Brian and he showed me uh, some of the sigils that were left or glyphs, as he called them, uh, you know, they looked like I could have ran ahead and just set them up real quick a lot of times. Um, so so just thinking about it in terms of of finding the glyphs alone is not enough. Um, there's a deeper spiritual connection to what's going on here. And I think it dovetails into things like synchronicities that occur. Once certain symbols are found, uh, there's symbols that will be found in random locations outside of the forest sometimes that'll speak to these folks. Um, Brian has had occurrences like that himself. And then once seemingly some of these folks are on board and are embracing this phenomenon is allegedly when Sasquatch families reveal themselves in their true form to these folks. And so Brian, you know, has, has said he's had um, face-to-face encounters with Sasquatch people and face-to-face encounters with these same Sasquatch that are leaving him these notes. And I asked him, well, Brian, what's the meaning of all this? Why do they want to do this? And what's so important about your relationship? And he says, they're doing this to give us a sign that there's more to life, that there's more out there. And they're trying to help us raise our consciousness. And in that way, I guess like that, I guess that kind of makes sense because if Sasquatch, if you are being told by a Sasquatch that, <laughs> you know, things are more mysterious than what it may seem, maybe you need to, you know, open your heart a little bit, love a little bit more and be a little bit more curious, I guess, what ambassador to do that. Uh, and how about for you? I mean, did you have some sort of a communication using, using glyphs? Honestly, I don't think so. And here's the thing. Brian told me very, very clearly, listen, you've experienced this with me now. You've seen my communications with Sasquatch people. The next time you're out hiking, look down. And I have hiked a dozen and a half times after that. And honestly, I have not. (laughs) I have not looked down because... I, I guess for me personally, this dips into the occurrence of, of things like synchronicity, of, of, um, of almost a trickster na- uh, notion um, of this phenomenon in general, of the paranormal phenomenon in general, is that uh, I believe, uh, after experiencing a ton of different random events and not-so-random events, that it is a participatory 
a participatory, uh, co-creative experience. And that for me, I have to be very careful with what I opt into at this point, because in the back of the wings waiting for me, I, I feel at any time is something that's saying, okay, are you ready to play again? Are you ready to come out and play again? And so I, I you know, when it comes to communicating with uh, Sasquatch, with glyphs, it's actually one of those uh, divination techniques, perhaps. It's a, it's, a, it's a way to communicate with this other side that, that I might not uh, be ready for and might be just a little bit too esoteric and abstract to, to, to literally like maybe hold my attention at this point. I had Mr. Bland on uh, on the podcast. He's, yeah, he seems like a very credible. I, I didn't find anything deceptive or I didn't feel like he was trying to pull one over on me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I think I actually heard him on your podcast and then I approached him to do to for me to come out there. I think I heard him first on your show actually, Richard, tell you the truth. And I think you know, if I remember correctly, I, I I remembered that he seemed so genuine yeah, and that that's the he word. really, yeah, he really believed in what was happening. And he was deeply emotional about how this relationship has changed his life. And, you know, he, he shared that story and I, he might, I think he shared it on your show. And it was about uh, after the passing of his mom, you know, he had already developed a relationship to the Sasquatch people. And he was, you know, having a real bad day. He was really down in the dumps. You know, his mom had just passed away. He's in the middle of grief. And he hadn't been up in the woods for a while. And he walks out to his car and out in his uh, driveway, right next to the door of his car, is one of those glyphs. Yes, yes. Now I remember. And to hear him, to see his face when he's telling that story, Richard, I, I can I can guarantee I can prove that your uh, thoughts about how what his intent was and how connected he was to that story and how earnest he was was completely a hundred percent on because he he had tears in his eyes Richard and he looked at me and he said with all the conviction conviction in his heart that these were his Sasquatch mm-hmm. family reaching out to con, you know to 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 give him condolences right right you know and when someone is that convicted you know it makes you emotional yeah. when you're trying to tell their story right and it makes you emotional in the moment and uh you can't help to have form a fond connection to to what their belief system is and and what this phenomenon how this phenomenon is expressing itself to them more of my conversation with jim perry host of euphemet when conspiracy unlimited returns tax day is coming oh no but if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Come on back. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the Whistleblower Tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. 
Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Jim Perry, host of the critically acclaimed paranormal podcast, Euphemet is here talking high strangeness and the unexplained. You uh, describe, you know, how you approach... Uh, these stories and how you approach these people, like Brian Bland, you say without credulity. Uh, so, you know, you're not there to debunk, you're not there to pass judgment, you're there uh, t- to provide a platform, really, to tell their story. And you're more interested in not in whether, uh, you know, tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but this is my understanding. Uh, you're not, you're not there to, you know, try and figure out, is this happening? Is it real? Where, where is the evidence? You're there to talk about how these phenomena affect people's lives, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, I think very early on, I think from just, I mean, when I was just dabbling in the paranormal and the first version of the show was an interview show. And uh, after, you know, years of doing that, and uh, for fun, as a hobby, essentially, and the the decades of of just consuming this stuff and listening to the guys like you, uh, it started to putting together the piece of you know if I'm to create something, um, unless I devote myself to some of these topics uh, in a very specialized way, you know, I'm a UFO guy, I'm a ghost guy, like I can't expect to solve the mysteries of the world you know this is a riddle that i don't even know if can be solved uh how am i going to do it in a 30 minute episode for for some sort of disparate phenomenon so what i decided was you know what i'm i'm interested in the transformative quality mm. of these experiences i want to hear about them as a person and first and foremost and how this how these experiences uh shape their lives now and shape the lives around them, you know? Uh, and in that way, you know, I, I got to say, it's it's given me a lot of freedom and relief um, because I don't have to go out there and try to disprove Brian Bland. And when I reflect on that story, I don't have to talk about evidence as much as I can talk about how it has shaped his life and how it's touched him. And to me, those are the most poignant stories anyway. And I feel that uh, those have connected with my audience in a way. And uh, I feel a great responsibility to capture and save these stories. Um, that being said, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to evidence. And in fact, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm into conspiracies. I'm working on an investigative thing right now. And, uh, you know, it's a big, very big part of it. And uh, I'm... I'm I'm an avid reader and and listener and watcher to things trying to find some sort of proof or evidence. But I just think for me personally, uh, I know where my skill sets and interests are. 
and that is trying to connect with a human behind it all. You have a, I guess it's kind of an offshoot of Euphemet. It's called Obscura, uh, which is interesting. An interesting connection because your logo for Euphemet is a moth, mm. and Obscura is a kind of moth, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, Obscura was an opportunity for me to, you know, essentially it started as a way for me to use things left on the cutting room floor of season one, things that alone couldn't quite make up the crux of the emotional story I wanted to tell. Um, Because it's always, you know, I I really want to do justice to the people that I'm featuring. I really want to make sure I'm, I'm creating a portrait with them that reflects their journey. And sometimes there's these other disparate pieces of phenomenon that like, hey, that's really awesome. But I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how that supports the A story. You know, my show is only 30 minutes long, 45 minutes long. So there was a lot of stuff that uh, I found uh, at the end on the cutting room floor that I just wanted to use and I wanted to get out there. But the more that series started to evolve and it's only four episodes it's a mini series but the more it started to evolve in my head i said listen i've been writing stuff this entire time and i've been on my own journey and i don't put a lot of myself into the work i like to really highlight the people that i'm featuring and i'll you know provide bumpers and clarification and set the table for for things but i don't it's not about me Right? So if I'm, if I have a ghost experience um, during a taping, which I did, well, that's not about me. I'm not going to throw that into the episode. Um, I don't want to steal any of the limelight from the people that I'm featuring. I think it's disrespectful. So Obscura was really an opportunity for me to do that. <laughs> Obscura was an opportunity for me, like you know what, this is straight up travel log. This is me telling people how I felt and then relating that to maybe if available, some sort of historical context. The things that I was experiencing in a certain location, usually I'm not alone. Usually there is some sort of historical precedent for these type of things happening. And so when I want to dig a little bit deeper into the history, when I want to tell a couple other stories, um, one of the episodes I remember I uh, detailed the story of, uh, of the Mothman case and went deeply into the Woodrow Derenberger and injured cold uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, you know, so it just gives me a little bit of an opportunity to uh, flex those muscles a little bit and just have a little bit of a different spin. But as you say, sometimes these things happen to you, uh, such as the time you were aboard the, uh, the Queen Mary, which I guess arguably is one of the most haunted locations, structures in the United States. My, uh, my experience with the Queen Mary, I've never been, uh, but it was, as you probably know, it was a troop carrier during the Second World War. Yeah. And my, my father was uh, a veteran of the Second World War. Uh, and I remember as a kid him telling me stories about crossing the Atlantic on the Queen Mary and, and standing at the stern of the ship, and now Queen Mary is like a football field long, like a thou- over a thousand feet long, and the waves were so rough, uh, they would be standing on the stern and they could see the bow rise up above them. <laughs> so, but, so that now you're standing on the Queen Mary, and what happens? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the things I don't usually do with the show and when I go to haunted locations, I usually don't do uh, the ghost tours, right? Uh, Because as much uh, as a a, uh, non-cynic, right, Uh, as much as I try to embrace this business as much as possible, uh, sometimes like the kitschy, you know, ghost tours are just maybe not not for me, right? Uh, But this time I decided, you know what? I have uh, I have a producer with me. Uh, you know, he doesn't have a lot of experience around this phenomenon. Uh, let me sh- let 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 me indulge here a little bit and take him along and see what happens. You know, it's only you know allegedly one of the most haunted you know vessels in the world, right? So we'll see. So I went in with uh, with literally no expectations. Um, but uh, there was a part of the process where, as a group, we were uh, down deep in the bowels of the ship, and uh, we performed a, uh, a small and very quick EVP session. Uh, EVP, of course, electronic voice phenomenon. Uh, it is when uh, certain signals, phrases, voices, etc., can be picked up by a particular recording device. Uh, or essentially sometimes any recording device. But it isn't heard until you play it back. It's not heard in real time. These are things you don't hear with your ears at the time, typically. Right. During this session, however, uh, the, the ghost investigator was, uh, was giving out calls, was giving cues, and asking questions to any spirits that could be aboard. He asked a question, uh, can you complete the nickname of the ship, it is called the Gray. He stopped, didn't say anything. Audibly, everyone in the room, from somewhere up above and in the back of the room, we hear ghost. Hmm. And there was a couple of beats afterwards where everyone was <laughs> kind of had that puzzled look, and no one wanted to be the first one to say, Did you hear that? But we all wanted to say, did you hear that? <laughs> and, uh, and the ghost investigator um, on the tour, he, he was the one, of course, like, who, who said that? Did you hear that? Everybody was like, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Uh, I had my, um, my Zoom H4N recording that, and I had recorded that in my microphone. Uh, it was a very clear and distinct uh, audible whisper uh, saying ghost, finishing what that, uh, what that name of the ship, the nickname was, the Grey Ghost. And uh, it's, it's one of those things where do I, do I believe that was a disembodied, um, a disembodied voice? I mean, maybe. I mean, could have been someone whispering it, saying it out loud. But, uh, yeah, sure, could have been. But do I think anybody would have committed to that all the way? without like showing some telltale signs. It was a small group. Um, it was a lot of folks really, really there, I think, um, wanting to experience something. It wasn't a lot of, um, let's just say it was, it was, it was, it was um, more specific than pedestrian, right? Right, right. They, they, they were into it. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it, I think it might've been legit. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, um, I didn't need to hear that to, to, to 
you know, kind of believe that something else is going on, but it sure changed my producer's world. You know, <laughs> yeah, he, he's a changed man after that. Oh yes. So, yeah. So yes. speaking of EVPs, uh, what is this haunted historic object you interviewed and then you got a reply? Yeah. So this was one of those situations. It was a complete paradigm shift for me. Uh, it was during the taping of the first of season one. And I was with these paranormal investigators, Greg and Dana Newkirk. Uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk, they live in Cincinnati. I was doing an episode about their relationship to the haunted objects in their traveling museum of the paranormal and the occult. And, you know, Richard, I actually really wanted to know what it was like to live and commune with these objects because there's no separation between Greg and Dana and their museum, they live with these objects that they tour with. They're just in their house. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these are essentially, you know, these are objects that people have abandoned and given to Greg and Dana because they feel like they're haunted or there's bad energy or bad juju. They, they want to get rid of them and out of their house because bad things have been happening. So Greg and Dana take them in and, and uh, you know, Greg had developed quite the rapport with one object in particular that has become like sort of the statement piece for them. Um, oftentimes items, these, these are items in which folks don't, you know, know what to do with. They start showing the signs of being haunted. Um, and the Newkirks essentially try to resolve these issues and try to give them peace. And the Idol of Nightmares was one of these items. It's a three foot tall wooden African statue and, um, you know, I encourage people to go and listen to this particular episode to hear uh, the sort of relationship that was developed between Greg and the statue. But it was – they really had a little bit of an emotion, uh, emotional roller coaster ride. Um, and this item became a really sort of trusted and loved member of their family at the end of the day. Uh, they call it Billy, and Billy sits upon this altar in their living room. He's essentially uh, surrounded by little booze bottles and beads and coins and money and um, you know, cigars. And these are offerings from Billy's fans. Uh, people come from all over the country to come and see Billy at, the, um, at their museum locations and they give him things. And this was before even they knew that it was something that uh, African statues uh, like this, Nikisi statues, um, are sort of honored, uh, honored um, let's just say, guides for the shamans within these communities. And one of the ways they respect these shamanic spirit guides is by giving them offerings, you know, whether that's money or the like. So after hearing the story... I said, well, he's sitting right over there. <laughs> I have my recorder. Uh, they had all of this, all of this great documented EVP recordings of Billy speaking to them and answering questions and having a relationship with them essentially where uh, they would ask a question, he'd give a response, no problem. So I said, well, you know what? I've talked to you guys all about him, considering he can talk on his own, right? Maybe let's go to the source. I, let's hear it from yeah, the horse's right, mouth. Right. right. Can I interview him? So I asked Greg and he says, well, you can try. So uh, 
I walked over there. I gave him an offering with some coins or something. And Greg goes over and he holds up the EVP recording device next to Billy. He introduces me. And at this point, Richard, I'm, I'm nervous. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm scared because this is another one of those moments where if this statue talks back, life for me is different. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. And so, so I'm standing there and my entire body is buzzing and I start asking Billy some really simple questions, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm nervous and it's like kind of feels weird. And so I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not really, my intent is not like pure at this point. I'm thinking, you know, he'll not answer back and this was fun, but it's not tape I'll ever use. And so of course, um, you know, we play, we play back the, the, the recorder and there's no responses. And so at that point, it was, whew, I, I dodged a bullet here. Oh, uh, darn. Like, oh, darn. Yeah. And thank God. <laughs> right. <laughs> All at the same time. Exactly. And so uh, needs to say, I was not off the hook because Greg wouldn't accept that. He said, no, no, no. Like, come back. Let me try something real quick. And so Greg leans over into Billy's, you know, what would be his wooden ear there. And he whispers something to Billy. And then he drops the EVP recorder on Billy's feet and he walks away and he says, now try. <laughs> so this is me saying like, oh, I thought I really dodged a bullet here. I thought I was going to get off the hook. And now he's done some sort of communication where uh, now expectations are there, right? So I, I approach Billy again and I said, you know what? Okay, well, if this is the situation, I'm, I'm going to try. No, like maybe let, let's, let's do this. Let's talk. And I, I took a couple really deep breaths and I began to ask more questions. So this EVP recorder, this device essentially, when it picks up a sound signature, it has a visual cue. It has a red light that comes on that shows you that it's picking up visual cues, even if you're not hearing anything. So I begin to ask questions. I, I in my first question and the red light, it appears, it comes on. And so now the first question is out of the way. And now it's like game match set. Like, let's, yep, I'm talking back to you. I'm listening. Here we go. And so I begin to ask him more questions. And I ask him about a dozen questions. We listen to it back. And Richard, there's something on the other end that sounds like cohesive answers to my questions. What did the voice sound like? <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's it's a little frightening, actually. the the uh, the tenor of the voice is is a little guttural, seemingly, and a little unhuman. But at the same time, it it has the the characteristics of a human-like voice. Uh, it's almost as if a pitch modulation for audio people has occurred, and that there's a little bit more of a deep, gravelly. I mean, dare I say, demonic sort of archetypal voice there of course it, um, would, it would have to be wouldn't it <laughs> I, I would assume so so i you know i you know i asked him about a dozen questions um you know he gave me cohesive answers back i i included that in that episode of euphemat i think it's perhaps episode number six um but you know i asked him questions like do you like dana and greg and the voice came back i believe this is how we interpreted it i like dana and greg i asked him who the favorite house cat was we interpreted him as saying peter and peter is 
one of the two cats in the household. Uh, I asked him, is there a place you want to go? The voice responded, Africa. This is an Africa Nikisi statue, a, a very cherished statue of the Congolese people. So, you know, it continued from there. It continued. I asked him what he thought about the mirror that was behind him. This question was based off a conversation I had with Greg earlier in the day. I had noticed a black obsidian-like mirror hanging behind Billy. And this is a mirror, of course, that uh, you'll see uh, divinators, right? Channeler use for scrying and for essentially communicating essentially with the other side. And that is exactly what Greg and Dana have used that before. In fact, they have visitations in that mirror of uh, things walking back and forth. They catch it in the middle of the night when they're up getting water or whatever else. There's someone else there on occasion just taking a look. <laughs> and uh, Billy uh, Billy doesn't like it. Billy doesn't like that mirror. And this is what Greg told me. He said he doesn't, you know, he doesn't like the other statues. He doesn't like the other, uh, you know, we have to separate him essentially usually from everything else. So I asked him, Billy, what do you think about the mirror behind you? And Billy answers, it's a bad mirror. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> but what, what the emotional crux of this whole thing was, and it's how I really understood the Newkirk's relationship with this object and how they connected with it, is I asked Billy, what do you want us to learn? And he answered, I am not bad. And <laughs> after hmm. hearing story and story from Greg and Dana about the state of the EVPs when he was first brought to them, he was screaming, he was yelling, he was furious about something, he wanted to connect, and he couldn't, and nobody understood him. And he was, he woke up, you know, uh, after being in uh, relative obscurity, hidden away, buried. Uh, he woke up in a world with a full a bunch of white folks in a community he's not present somewhere in the future. And uh, he was legitimately maybe a little perturbed about that. And uh, that's how those things were expressing. So to have a conversation with him, to, to, to have access granted, right, I think was really important. And that conversation did end up changing me. It changed my reality a bit. But what I couldn't imagine was that experiences like that would just continue happening. And I had to learn how to keep my reality just a little bit more flexible, maybe. (laughs) To say the least. To say the least. Well, that's about the time my rational mind kicks in and I start um, looking for prosaic explanations, like I'm treading water desperately. Yeah, I know. There's a... There's a there's a part of me that battles with this phenomenon, uh, you know, nearly on a daily basis. So I'll have to say that when I'm not working on Euphemet as a project and I'm not and I'm not tuned into the phenomenon, then it does seem it does seem to quiet. But uh, you know, not too dissimilar from books from guys like Keel. You know, mm-hmm. there is seemingly a co-creative quality to some of this phenomenon. Phenomenon, and that uh, once you engage with this level of strange, sometimes it 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 sees that and it it wants to engage right back. You know, um, a friend of mine, John E. L. Tenney, 
who's this prolific paranormal investigator. I, I'm not sure if he's been on your show or not yet, Richard, but I'm sure you probably crossed paths with him at some point in time. You know, he'll have a, he, he talks about the phenomenon as uh, this playful sort of soul that, that uh, you know, every time, uh, you know, it sees that you're perhaps ready to play, you know, it says, hey, you want to play some more? You know, like kind of tapping, you know, tapping on a little glass next to you or something, you know, saying like, hey, let's do this. Right. And right. Uh, that's been my experience. Well, that's why I guess, you know, once you get a taste of this, if that's the right uh, term, uh, you can't go back. Uh, there was a time in my career where I wanted to leave, again, the land of woo-woo and do a normal so-called talk show. And I tried it for a few weeks and I thought, what am I doing? I just, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've been to the, uh, I guess the outer limits, there's no going back. Yeah. Uh, how do people catch Euphemet? So you can find everything at euphemet.com and that's spelled E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T. And uh, everything is you know, available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. We also have a Patreon that uh, patreon.com slash euphemet. And this contains the original version of the show, which was more interview-based and completely a little bit of a different spin, but, um, you know, uh, worth checking out probably. And uh, this season you can find us on the YouTube page of Planet Weird as we'll be producing short films for each and every uh, second season episode. And so that'll be something to definitely check out as well. Fantastic. Jim, great meeting you. Yeah, great meeting you, Richard. Thank you so much. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be right back to tell you a little bit about what's in store on the next installment of Conspiracy Unlimited. This segment, sponsored by The Horrible Movie Podcast, available at iTunes and thehorriblemoviepodcast.com. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible. Coming up next time, an author of eight books dealing with Secret Societies and the New World Order discusses the elite globalist plan for one world government. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.